Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, its sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and the third book, uh, which is hopefully available as you're hearing or watching this, Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. Uh, we've got two 11-year-old boys racing around on jetpacks, solving mysteries, fighting giant robot bees and all manner of other monsters. It's a good time if you're curious. Uh, you could check out that first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, as an audiobook, a paperback, or the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written novels such as the young adult horror novel All Together Now a Zombie Story, uh, and the serial novel The Book of David. Uh, which is about an atheist who purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him visions involving flying saucers. It's nuts. Uh, it's a five-volume serial horror story. If you're curious about that, you can get the first part, The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent, not Rob Kent, uh, as a paperback, or the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this. Or if you check the back catalog, I don't know, five or six episodes ago, uh, I read it live for free. So you can hear me read it to you and then read the uh, uh, chapters two, three, four, and five. Uh, as always, keep up with what's going on with me, the show, everything in life worth knowing about at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, and that's all for me. My God, there's three of us. We got to get this thing started. Uh, my guest today, our uh, editor, uh, Sarah Jane Wiseman and author Dorothy Windsor. Uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, Sarah Jane uh, Slack, and we're going to be talking about the book, The Wiseman. Um, so probably the best place to get started uh, is rather than making either of you listen to me read your bio, uh, if I could get each of you to introduce yourself to esteemed audience and kind of give them an overview of your background. And Dorothy, we'll start with you. Sure. Uh, I'm a, a former technical communication professor. Uh, for a lot of years, I taught uh, technical writing and editing and all manner of stuff like that at, at the university level. And my research was about the communication practices of engineers. And from there, I wound up writing young adult fantasy. And you wonder, how did that happen, right? Um, I Because I never thought I was creative enough to write fantasy, but um, I, uh, when Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies came out, I was just like knocked uh, stupid by being so enchanted by them, and I loved them so much that I didn't want the stories ever to end, and I kept writing, I started writing fan fiction, Lord of the Rings fan fiction, and I did that for quite a while, fairly obsessively, and Lo and behold, I woke up one, woke up one day and there were um, a million words that I had written, uh, which is quite astounding. Um, and I had read some author's advice that you have to write a million words of bad stuff before you can write anything good. And I thought, I'm there, right? So <laughs> I, st I started writing my own, my own stuff. And that's kind of where I got where I am. So is that fan fiction available someplace for esteemed audience can track that down? Sure can. I used my initials, a D-A-W, and, and on one of the sites, it would not search on anything that short, so I added The Minstrel afterwards. So if you read Da The Minstrel, you'll find, find that stuff. And some of the early stuff is just incredibly bad. Uh, I, don't, I, I learned a lot 
and that's because I had much to learn, you know, but it was a really good, safe place to do that. So very low stakes. You know, it was fun. It was fun. Well, nobody that's going to see capture Lord of the Rings fan fiction is hoping for good stuff. They'll, they'll read the published books when they want the good stuff. This is. <laughs> <laughs> they could make a lot of fun of me if they read the, the fanfic. That's all right. I've had that happen. It won't be the first time. <laughs> <laughs> that's outstanding. Uh, and then, uh, Sarah, same question. If you would give us a bit of a, an overview of your background. Sure. So I uh, started Inspired Quill back in. April 2011, we've been going for just over nine years now. Um, I did it whilst I was a master's student at the University of Leicester studying English. Um, it was a book review blog beforehand and uh, hearing horror stories about the industry had that sort of righteous rage that you get in your early 20s. How hard can it be to create win-win situations? Da, 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 da. Um, but actually, my uh, my professional life is is more within digital marketing, search engine optimization, inbound marketing, um, and I worked for a um, ethical finance company for for a while. So I've I've got a a slight range of uh, <laughs> range of working uh, skills, I guess you'd call them. Um, so yeah, I, I've been in the publishing industry sort of for about nine years now. Um, and I always make the joke that the only way I could get into the publishing industry is by creating my own publishing house. So make of that, uh, make of that what you will. Um, so yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell. There's uh, first of all, thank you both very much for uh, being here. This is a uh, middle grade ninja first talking to the editor and the author of a book. This is an inspired idea, which uh, Dorothy, I think you get full credit for, for the, having the idea. Uh, I'm excited. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, no, it's a scary prospect to to face the middle grade ninja esteemed audience alone. You. <laughs> <laughs> I've got uh, lots of questions for both of you about how you work together, uh, how you've um, uh, how you work apart. Uh, probably a good spot to start is one, let's talk about the publishing house a little, and then two, let's just start and dive right into the, the Weissman. Um, but Sarah, I'm going to ask you to take this one, and then I'll have Dorothy uh, take the next question first. Uh, but if you would, just tell us a little bit about Inspired Quill. Sure. So as I mentioned earlier, um, we were set up in uh, April 2011. It was April 5th that I got the official paperwork through. Um, I did want to incorporate the business on April 1st, um, but was told by friends and family to take life a little bit more seriously, so I caved. <laughs> um, so, yeah, as I mentioned, we were a book review blog to begin with, with me doing English at university. I figured this was a thing. I enjoyed, you know, sharing opinions on the internet because what young 20-something doesn't enjoy sharing opinions on the internet? Um and yeah, as I was saying, we were kind of set up from the, the righteous rage I felt by, you know, hearing lots and lots of horror stories about the industry, not just uh, from self-published and, and indie published authors, but mostly authors from the big six, as they were back then before Penguin Random House happened. Um, so we we started out basically publishing anything um, and very quickly I realized that that was not a thing that we should do um, because, you know, uh, 
selling poetry is much, much different to selling science fiction is different to, you know, publishing children's books, for example. So we niche down only slightly. Um, but all the way through this process, I was very keen to have um, mindful authors. So non-tokenistic diversity, um, very keen to, you know, to, to elevate voices within within the industry. And of course, you know, we've got an awful lot of work still to do on that, even nine years later. But um, that's always been our ethos, uh, so much so that we have a diversity pledge on the website. Um, and I've done lots of uh, events, workshops to do with um, not just working in the industry and trying to pull the curtain back because there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, as I'm sure many of your uh, listeners are, are aware of generally um but also kind of trying to give stepping stones um to to people who want to work in the industry and yeah positive publishing basically <laughs> or trying anyway so nine years and you haven't sorted out diversity in publishing <laughs> i've been trying maybe, maybe, maybe i've been trying is the one so the diversity pledge, what does that mean and how, um, how, 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 how do you put that in action? So it's really interesting because, you know, we've been going for nine years and I've always said, you know, non-tokenistic diversity is incredibly important. Um, but actually, we didn't have a diversity pledge on the website until about a year and a half, two years ago, because I made the mistake of thinking, well, it's obvious. Obviously, non-tokenistic diversity is important. And isn't everyone doing that? Um, so, you know, a couple of years ago, um, you know, I kind of realized that actually, no, it's not obvious. And that's that's the problem. Um, so I kind of, you know, put the created the diversity pledge, um, popped it on the Inspired Quill website and to to my uh, you know, guilt, I guess. I, I didn't really do much much else a, apart from that. Um, and it's something that, you know, we've we've been working quite hard on for the last few months, uh, certainly this year, um, to, to really not just talk about change and making actions for ourselves to to do to get rid of, you know, any unconscious bias that that we might have and to reach out to others in the industry but also to really think long and hard about um, changes to the system as well. So working with other people within the industry to affect real change rather than just, you know, oh, we've, we've got a, a book with this kind of protagonist box tick, which is exactly what we're against. Um, so the, the diversity pledge itself is split into uh, four different parts. The first part is diversity in books. So, um, you know, we understand inclusive books to mean great mainstream stories, not isolated as a separate genre or segregated strand of literature. Um, writing mindfully, choosing characters by turn and not defaulting, um, that sort of thing. The second part is reader representation. So, um, you know, we're committed to ensuring that all readers can find authentic representations of themselves in books. Um, and also that goes towards the the fact that the books, events and, and mentoring are as accessible as possible. 
um, talks, panels, workshops. They're not just going to be at, you know, universities, um, that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, sort of avoiding uh, tropes on book covers as much as possible, not whitewashing book covers, which is actually one of the specific things that tipped me over the edge to make Inspired Quill in the first place. And, um, yeah, taking on board reader feedback and, and not being defensive and realising that we'll always have work to do. Um, the other two sections are a little bit drier, I guess, but within the industry, still really important. So um, diversity when it comes to author and volunteer community. So one thing to to um, let you know about Inspired Quill is that uh, we're all volunteers, basically. So I've been running it for nine years and I used to call it my very expensive hobby. It is now my hobby that pays for itself. <laughs> hey, hey um, moving up in the world. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those things. It's a little bit of a catch-22 situation, I guess, whereby, you know, I work a full-time job and then work Inspired Quill evenings and, and weekends uh, and have been doing for for nine years simply because, you know, I haven't had the capacity to build it to where I need to. And, you know, the, the circle continues, unfortunately. Um, so for the author and volunteer community section of the um, the diversity pledge, it's, you know, um, being committed to providing a space where everyone feels comfortable and welcome to not only submit work to us. And I've I've done a lot of work on the, the submissions page on the Inspiral website to um, and that website address for people that want to get get right there, right as they're listening. Ah, uh, sure. It's www.inspired-quill.com. Um, and then, yeah, things like um, fostering a, a good community within the authors. Dorothy will probably be able to tell you uh, a little bit more about about that and how we we work together as a a real community rather than, you know, just a couple of best-selling authors and then everyone else kind of, you know, um, clawing for attention. And and the last thing is, in, in the diversity pledge, the last thing is about equality in business. So, um, you know, it, it describes what we see as diversity, so what that actually means to us, um, and our commitment to engage with industry colleagues at, at all levels, um, and challenge the, the status quo where where possible, seeking partnerships, um, you know, lifting other voices, even if they're not ours, and um, being really transparent with the mistakes we make and, and the learning as, as we go forward. I sense that you have lots of feelings about the way big publishing <laughs> does things. And uh, Steve, I just... Uh, Sarah told me that she's got a pint of tea that she's going to be enjoying, and I'm going to try to get her to spill all of it before <laughs> we get to the end I of see what show. you did there. <laughs> I try to say at least two clever things per episode. That's one. So wait for the other <laughs> audience. It'll be exciting. Uh, and then, Dorothy, why don't you pick up the thread? Because eventually I want to get to the point where almost like a professional romance will we'll learn the story <laughs> of how you, you crazy kids came together to, to make the wise thing. Uh, what? Uh, how did you hear about Inspired Quill? What What attracted you to them? I uh, there's a an online site called uh, Absolute Right, W R I T E Absolute Right, 
uh, where a lot of authors hang out and share information and support one another. And one of Inspired Quill's authors was on there talking about how much he liked working with Inspired Quill. I think it was Ben, Sarah, Ben Hennessy, I think. Oh, thanks, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I think that's who it was. And at the time I was, you know, submitting to small presses and I, and uh, Inspired Quill, at least at that point, was running a one, one month a year where they would take open submissions. And I just submitted and they took it. And now that wasn't this book, that was The Wind Reader, which is the first book in this series. And then The Wiseman is the second one. So they just surprised me by writing back and saying, sure. So I, I, that's not very dramatic. And, but it would certainly left me excited. You know, I was jumping up and down. So, um, and I have found it to be a really good place to to work. You know, to just to, to work good people to work with who treat me, uh, I would say honestly and so and um, you know ethically and openly too. Tell me what's going on. Don't try to hide things from me. And. Uh, that sh you would think that would be standard practice, but it turns out it's not. And I, so I, I'm, um, I'm, you know, happy that I stumbled upon it. Or that I'm happy that Ben bragged it up. So there you go. Well, I think Dorothy's got some tea. Also, we we, we could have ourselves a very pleasant conversation. <laughs> um, well, I tell you what, I want to dig in how you work together, how everybody uh, gets involved, but probably the best way to, to, to talk about that is to talk about your series. Um, so if you would, please give esteemed, I, I don't summarize other people's biographies, and I don't make you sit, sitting through me summarizing your book, uh, how painful for you that would be. If you would, tell the esteemed audience all about your series. Um, okay, the first book, uh, The Wind Reader, is about... Um, the central character is named Doniver, and he's one of three, he's, he's marooned in a city far from home through no fault of his own. It, it, and he and, and so he's living on the streets with two other kids. Uh, and uh, so he's the, the, the main character and his pals are Jarka and Dilly. And he, um, he's pretending to be able to tell fortunes in order to earn enough to eat with. And he accidentally tells a true fortune for the prince who takes him into the castle to be the royal fortune teller. So the good news is there's food and a warm bed, but the bad news is he can't tell fortunes. And they're worried about an assassination plot. So things get tense. So that's that. But at the end of the book, everything is solved. And he goes home. And, and yeah. Dilly goes yeah. home. And it's just Jarka left in the city. So the second book is about Jarka. The wise man is about Jarka. Um, Jarka um, was um, was born with a crooked foot, what we would call a club foot. And in the world of the book, the, um, the gods never take anything away without giving something back, getting a gift back. So um, for Jarka, the gift is wind reading. That is, he can read the wind to tell what the secrets, people's secrets are being carried along on the wind. Um, uh, so he's uh, now in the in the castle where Donovan no longer is. He's in the castle, training to be a, an advisor for the king because he has his his power. And street kids start disappearing. And when a, as a former street kid himself, he's very concerned about these kids. He's kind of been keeping track of them, and he decides he's going to hunt down who who is taking them. 
and um, the king tells him to back off, which is also a fairly suspicious thing from his point of view, right? So, um, so that's essentially what the book is, is him trying to figure out who is grabbing these kids and uh, to, you know, protect them. So I would say, they, and there was a third book, the one about Dilly will be next year. Third member of the first trio. So um, I find it's uh, sort of amusing just how un, uh, unstartled, I guess, or how, how um, unbothered so many characters were by the disappearing of street kids. Like, yeah, it's fine. These things happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Well, actually, you know, street kids, uh, out there are street kids disappearing right now, you know. When you think about the street, the streets of Chicago, near where, which is where I live, so yeah, strays, they're strays. Nobody, they don't belong to anybody. Well, Sarah, you're the editor. How did that uh, description of the series go? You think any any improvements you would make? <laughs> yeah, <never. laughs> um, yeah, that's that's a, a pretty good um, de description of of the series. I think I I think in terms of the the themes. For, for this series, the, the things that really um, caught my attention about it is the, the ability for people who are in really, really tough, often dire situations to care for, about each other. Um, and, and we see and even care about people they don't necessarily know very much um, and to, you know, come together to, to do the right thing, even when it's difficult, which, you know, in, in today's world is is an incredibly important motif, I think. So who uh, who is the ideal reader for this young adult novel? Um, I, it, it's, you know, it's nominally young adult um, and I think it crosses over, but I think it crosses over for an adult reader fairly well. And, but actually, I think that's true of a lot of science fiction and fantasy. I think that the line between young adult and adult readership in science fiction and fantasy is, has always been one that was crossed pretty frequently. Um, uh, an editor of uh, Sourcebooks, which is a publisher here in Chicago, spoke to my writer group here, and he said they had been debating internally what constituted young adult fantasy because it was hard to classify some of these books. And he said that uh, they finally concluded that it was books about young characters. It was fantasies about young characters, period, and that everything else that gets associated with that is basically a marketing um, move. Where do you put it in the store? That's a marketing move. You know, how, what do you call it? That's a marketing move. Which I, I thought that was an interesting insight from him. And Sarah, uh, Sarah, do you uh, do you having marketed the book and, and, and planning on, on on where to put it before? Do you have an ideal uh, reader that you're targeting with marketing, or who who are you reaching out for to 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 get the good news of this series in their hands? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting <coughs> because Dorothy rightly said, young adult does not just mean that you know young adults are going to read it. In fact, I read. Um, uh, a few months ago that actually the biggest readership for young adult books are women be between the ages of 20 and 35. So that was fascinating for me to kind of learn about that. But it, it does kind of make sense, you know. Um, and the other thing, of course, is from a business perspective, not necessarily who's buying, uh, who's 
wanting to read the books, but who's buying the books. So it's not necessarily about, you know, um, trying to, to get the books on, on websites that kids necessarily look at or, or young adults necessarily look at. Although obviously that's, that's a big thing um, as, as well with, you know, influencers and um, I mentioned earlier about the importance of, of bloggers and booktubers, etc. Um, but also websites where there are parents looking for great books for, for their for their kids as well, whether that's young young teenagers or um, you know looking for, for birthday gift ideas, for example. So there's a, a big crossover. And so um, knowing that your day job is project manager with with uh, search engine optimization, right? Mm-hmm. How does that uh, parlay over into your role as publisher and, and marketer uh, for <laughs> books like uh, Dorothy's and, and, and the rest of the catalog that you have available? Yeah, it's um, unfortunately a lot of the time it's that age old thing of uh, the cobbler's children have no shoes, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> um, so a lot of what I do with the authors in terms of, you know, digital marketing it, it's not just about me sort of throwing out the the fishing net and trying to get readers. It's about, you know, teach an author to fish kind of thing. Um, And I remember when Dorothy first came on board with Inspired Quill, for example, we sat down and and set up, um, you know, her her blog. And I periodically review author websites and blogs and make sure they're they're optimized and uh, do training about you know how to write a blog post that that people will not only read but also find which is obviously incredibly important and all without burning out as well Um, again another horror story from the industry is you must have 10,000 followers on twitter 10,000 followers on facebook and blog every third tuesday and it's like no (laughs) quite frankly because um, you do that for one month, get burned out and then hate it and never do it again. And what's the point? Um, so, the yeah, the crossover is, is really interesting, actually, I guess, um, because obviously Inspired Quill came first before my current uh, current position with. Um, and, and you'll like the name of, of the company I work for because it's Exposure Ninja. Um, and um, yeah, like so actually, I. Yeah. <laughs> um, I kind of brought my project management expertise from Inspired Quill over to Exposure Ninja and and not the other way around, really, which is interesting, I guess. Uh, Well, let's go back to our our, our meet cute we were building to. Dorothy, you submitted, uh, you had, uh, had you just finished uh, the the first book or uh, where were you in the series when you submitted? Um. I would say I had just finished the first book and I sent it to Sarah, but it's kind of hard to tell when any book was just finished because I've had drafts of this sitting around like since 2007 or something. It's a ridiculously long time ago. And, you know, I, I try and I set it aside and say, no, that's, that's not very good. And I would revise and send it out. So when I sent it to Sarah, it's true. I had just finished the latest revision so I just finished it, yes, but it taken me a long time. I and um, yes. So I guess that was that that the answer to that is yes. I had just finished it. <laughs> Fair enough. And how long uh, did it take you to 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 write from your 
first draft to that that version that you were submitting? Oh, seriously. I mean, what do you count? Because there would be times when I would be not looking at it at all. I would be fiddling with some other book, right? But it would not surprise me if it, if it was, um, oh, maybe as long as eight, nine years, that there are old drafts sitting there that I wouldn't let anybody see, you know? So, yeah, it, I'm, it takes me a long time to get something right. I can spit out a draft pretty quickly, but then... I have to let it, I have to think about it and think, well, what is this really about? Um, what do these characters really need? What is this missing? What, what does it need? And so by the time Sarah got it, it had been through a lot of revision. You know, I send it to beta readers, I, you know, and then work it over. And it's just, I take it to my writing group, you know. So, um, yeah, um, I'm a big, I like revising and I, I'm a big, I would revise forever. If she hadn't taken it, I'd probably still be revising it. <laughs> and uh, for, for a series, did you, did you have some idea of what the second two books would be? Or was it just, no. let's worry about this story and then maybe we'll, we'll come up with something later? I was just worried about the first one, working on that. But then, you know, I couldn't let the other two characters go. I, it's really hard to part from characters who have been in your head for a long time and you've been thinking about and thinking about what they're worried about, what they're afraid of, what makes them happy. You, you can't just, at least I can't just walk away from them. It's very hard to let them go. And so particularly, uh, so the first one I picked up was Jarka. I was very interested in him and um, he, so I wrote him a book. <laughs> so I didn't have to say goodbye to him. <laughs> Ah, and then uh, Sarah, so over to you. You're reading uh, the, the slush and saying, terrible, dreadful, who told you you could write? Oh, my God. So, Dorothy Windsor, the whole world stops, the music swells, the, the light <laughs> brightens from the manuscript. What's your, what's your experience of why, why was Dorothy's story one that appealed to you and that you knew you, you must publish? First of all, um, Dorothy actually decided to um, go with what we ask a submission to be at Inspired Quill. Um, the amount of submissions that we get that do not follow the guidelines. And I mean, you know, some, some publishing houses say, you know, 12.4 font in Times New Roman with this and this and this. And, and we're just like, please let it be in Microsoft Word because I don't have a Mac. And please... Um, tell us the, the genre, the word count, and the synopsis. Like, I don't think we ask for much. The amount of PDFs I receive oh. when I open submissions, the amount of books that are... I, I once had a submission of a book that was 248,000 words. And I say very specifically on the site, 50 to 110K, and that's, that's what we do. Um, so yeah, first of all, she actually decided to follow the guidelines. So thank you, Dorothy, for that. Um, and it's really interesting because lots of people will say within the first 10 seconds, a publisher knows whether they want to take a book on or not. For me, it's more, I know in the first 10 seconds, if it's a definite no, um, it, it takes a little bit more to, um, for me to warm up to to a book um i think it's only happened 
twice in Inspired Quill's nine years where I've read the first page of a book and gone, yes. Um, and one of those, unfortunately, we ended up not publishing. Um, but so from, from my perspective, it, it was a, a solid opening, had a really good sense of place, really good sense of pacing as well. And I could tell that, you know, care had gone into writing it. Um, there were no typos on the first page. There were, you know, just the, and this is going to sound really wishy-washy and, and woo-woo perhaps, but I got a good feeling about it. Um, so, yeah, I, I read the whole thing. And then, so we asked for the first two chapters um, normally from, from a manuscript. And then um, that doesn't I asked sound for the whole thing. Ooh, 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 would be if you looked in the mirror the next morning and written on it in blood was Dorothy <laughs> Oh, well, then yes. <laughs> Windsor all bust. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, a good feeling makes perfect sense. I'm sorry, I, I derailed you. You were saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's, um, so, yeah, effectively um, read it through. It, it was already in a really, really good place. And you know selfishly it's good to know that it's not going to have to go through 10 rounds of revisions um although from my perspective i would much rather work with an author um who's a good storyteller than a good writer so you can teach someone how to you know how to write and um you know, put put the words in the right order and do the grammar and, you know, is it lay, lie, lane, laid, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it's really difficult to find a, an author who um, really believes in what they're writing, even though they're writing sci-fi or fantasy or, or whatever and, and has that connection with the characters. Um, what's... Uh... I've got a few different questions that I'm, I'm struggling <laughs> to, to find which one to seize on uh, exactly. Um, so, but it's interesting that you say that. Why why are authors submitting sci-fi and fantasy books, which we know are cash cows that immediately will make someone wealthy and famous forever? Why? Because people publish them. Because people publish them. That's yeah. that's one of the big challenges of this industry is that that you know we're getting books that are just the same story over and over because people are buying them because we're not giving the people anything else to buy. You know, if you look in big, um, I'm not going to name any names because that's a bridge I don't quite want to burn yet. But if you, if you look on, you know, go into big bookshops, um, especially chain stores, it, it's all the same kind of book on the shelf. And yes, most of them should be there. I, completely you know not taking anything away from the authors who write them because usually the stories are fantastic but there's a duty of care within the industry as well that isn't always as meticulous as it should be you know but why aren't people bothered about reading diverse voices coming back to that you know people don't read books with this kind of character or that kind of character it's like it's not that they don't read them. First of all, have you seen fan fiction? Why do you think that appears in the first place? It's not just about, you know, oh, I, I want to play in this world. A lot of it is to do with marginalised voices who 
want to see themselves in in writing and fan fiction gives them a, a safe space to to do that um but it's also about the fact that it's not that people don't want to buy the books it's that there are no books to buy <laughs> and i think that is changing now slightly um but yeah so i'll i'll get down off my soapbox now sorry <laughs> No, stay up there. What else should publishers do better? <laughs> we we would literally need a, a, a triple espresso for that conversation. <laughs> Fair enough. Come back. We'll have, we'll have that chat. Um, so, okay. Uh, you get the submission. You say, this this is the book I've been looking for. I'm excited. You let, uh, do you call Dorothy? Do you email her? Uh, what happens next from there? So from there, it's an email. So uh, first of all, it's the first two chapters. Then it's the um, the full manuscript. Before I send over a um, a publishing contract, I re- I request a Skype call because in Spyquill, such a small publisher, um, micro press really, I've got to um, get on with the people I publish effectively, and they have to really understand the Inspired Quill ethos so for example I I would never publish someone who is I don't know homophobic for example Um, and obviously sometimes that doesn't always come out in the writing so you know having having a a word with the author (laughs) yes there's a lot of throat throat clearing with that name Um, but yeah so it's really interesting how you know, sometimes you just really hit it off with an author and, and other times you don't. And then I have to think long and hard about, can I work with this person? Um, sometimes with submissions, I also get the the lovely phrase, it's ready to publish. Ooh. You don't have to do anything to it. It's, you know, publish it and you'll make a million pounds. It's like, well, why don't you publish it then? Um so, you know, working with an author that I can be collaborative with, which is incredibly important at Inspired Quill, you know, working with authors rather than above them. Um, so we had a, a Skype conversation. Uh, everything went smoothly. And then I sent a blank copy of the Inspired Quill contract. And I said, I don't want to hear from you. Don't email me. Don't text me. Don't Skype me for a week. Because what I found in the past is authors get the contract and immediately sign it because they're so excited to have a a publishing deal so I stripped that away from them by giving them a blank contract because they can't sign it because their stuff's not on it anyway Um, and I say you know give this to your partner your lawyer your pet goldfish your next door neighbor if there's any questions that you have or any amendments that you want let me know and we'll work through them um so transparency is incredibly important to me um, and by extension inspired Quill. Um, so that kind of sits for about a week. Then we get together again and have a discussion about that. And if we both still feel as though um, it's a project that, that we want to, to work on together going forward, then um, I get the author to, to sign the contract and uh, we start the process. So Dorothy, after your pet goldfish looked things over and said, yeah. yes, this is good. Um, yeah. what, what was your experience of the call and what, uh, what, and what advice can you maybe give authors listening who are going to um, experience a similar call about how to smoothly get through that and not throw up any red flags other than, of course, starting with this book is ready. There's nothing you need to do. Go ahead and publish <laughs> it. <laughs> um, 
I guess I don't actually have advice. It seemed like a very easy call to me. It was like chatting, you know, and I think to me, the most important thing you can do in anything like that is to sound like a human being. You know, that's true on Twitter. That's true every place. Sound like a person, Absolutely. you say, you know, and um, I have, I'm comfortable with being edited. You know, I was, I was uh, an academic. I had to publish or perish with articles or things. And I actually edited a scholarly journal for several years. So, and taught copy editing. So I'm happy with have an editor. An editor saves you from, an editor helps you. You know, and and so that was that's all fine by me. What it, you know, I read through the sat down, read through the contract with a magic marker, highlighted the things that I wanted to be sure to pay attention to, consulted with my writer friends who had signed contracts, and then came back. And uh, I don't think I changed anything. I may have asked a question or two. I just don't remember. But I mean, I may have asked about. I don't even remember. But I would, you know, you you learn eventually to look at things like. Um, when do your rights revert to you, you know, stuff like that. And um, so I, it felt like an easy call to me. Did it feel easy to you, Sarah? It did, but that's just because you're, you're a wonderful human being. So that helps. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there's the professional romance, I promise. Yeah, we got there you there. go. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Aside from Inspired Quill, whose contract obviously is uh, uh, beyond reproach, um, what are some things that maybe either of you have seen in contracts that you've looked at in the past that writers listening uh, should be aware of? And Dorothy, I'll ask you to continue, and then Sarah will will get your input as well. Well, I... For me, the reversion of rights was particularly important because I had had a previous book come out with a small press, and they that that was fine. They were fine, and they were in, um, and they had the book for about a year, and then they went out of business. You know, they went belly up. I mean, and they're a small business. Small life is tough for small businesses, and so it was really at that point my rights reverted to me, and I it and I have heard horror stories from writers about having to pay to have the rights referred, about having to buy any copies that the publisher had. And I wanted to avoid that because I had been just, I had just been in that situation, you know, now it turned out all right. The contract that I was working off of turned out all right. I went ahead and self-published that one because why not? It had a cover, it had been edited, put it up. But, um, uh, so I guess that was the, I, I can't even remember what else I looked at. Um, I guess you're looking at whether whether royalties are a percentage of, what are the royalties a percentage of? You know, how is that calculated? Um, what is the base for that? Um, uh, for the uninitiated, kind of what's, the, what's the good version we want to hear there versus the not so great version? Um, well, I guess I can, I think there's some flexibility there depending on how the whole thing reads. Sarah, do you want to say, I can't even remember, how does my, what does my contract say? <laughs> I can't remember. Um, so, yeah, the, the reversion of rights is, is a really big one. And at Inspired Quill, um, our contract basically says, if you want your rights back, give us a month's notice, which, as far as I'm aware, 
doesn't really happen anywhere else. But it, it's mm-hmm. kind of so for me, the contract is not just about looping the author into something. It's about accountability from both sides. Um, so the, there's that thing about the, the rights reversion. And in terms of the royalties, so in most of the industry and actually with the bigger presses, it's a percentage of the RRP. So, for example, if your book is £10 or dollars and your royalty percentage is um, 10%, then your for every book that sold you would get ten percent of ten dollars as a as a flat amount. Um, we're print on demand, which means that actually the cost per book, the the amount per book that it costs us to send out actually differs book to book, which is in, completely infuriating because Excel spreadsheets are not my forte, but they've had to become my forte um so we actually do percentage of profit so that could um mean four pounds per book it could mean 50 pence per book um and it it really can be that diverse what i try to do to make up for that is we have something called loyalty royalties um so for every year that the author is with Inspired Quill, their royalties increase by 5%. So I think now they start at 20% for paperbacks and I want to say 35 or 40 for ebooks. For every year that the author is with us, they increase to 5% until they're earning 50% of paperback royalties and 75% of ebook royalties. Is that increased for all books that the loyal author has with you? Yes. Or per book? Okay, great. So for, for every book, so for the authors, for example, who have been with us for quite a while and have multiple books, um, that that royalty is, is based for the author, not the individual book, um, just to, to make it fairer. Um, Uh, before we move on uh, to the next step in the process, anything else about contracts uh, that we want to say that authors should be wary of? I want to talk about reversion of rights some more. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, I want to tell a, a bad story without naming names. A friend of mine it, um, is published with a big press. This um, was uh, Handum Lofts. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it has a series, right? And um, no longer it, it no longer has a contract with that press, and wanted to, uh, the rights to revert, and was eventually managed to get the rights back on every book but one in that series series, and in order to make and the reason they wouldn't revert that one was that they said they had like 50 copies in their warehouse, and so they they couldn't so they sold those. My friend bought those 50 copies, and they have promptly ordered 50 more. So my friend still does not have the rights back on that one book in the series. One can almost hear the uh, person that orders books yelling, we got a sucker, let's get yeah, more. <laughs> that's right. So I repeat, if, if you're signing a contract, take a good look at that clause. See what it says. And Sarah, same uh, question for you. Anything else on uh, on contracts that people should be watching out for? Um, I don't think. So. I guess the other thing is um, 
the, the rights in terms of languages. So, for example, at Inspired Quill, um, you know, it's worldwide rights for the English language only. We do work with, um, with an agent uh, for worldwide rights, but that's a separate thing that the authors can opt in or out of as they like. Um, I guess the other thing would be to take a look and, and just see if the contract is written to as an author to kind of keep you in or as a way of forming a, a partnership of accountability. So, for example, with the Inspired Quill contracts, um, a, a few years ago I decided to put uh, another clause in that stipulated the minimum marketing that we would do per book again from horror stories of uh you know authors published by the big publishing houses with you know a 5k advance and then absolute crickets when it comes to marketing um i wanted to you know really say look we are committed to um you know sending out this many emails getting this many reviews spending this much money at a launch event for you doing xyz um to, to really sort of solidify the feeling that it's a partnership. And we do really find as well that the authors who we work with who do more and not just by themselves, but ask for help as well. You know, my background is digital marketing, so there's no excuse really. Um, the authors that do their part and ask for help um, do much better than, than the authors who kind of go, ah, well, my book's out, that's it. Well, let's uh, let's dive right into that, and then we'll come back and we'll we'll pick up from where we left off with the the contracts been signed. But let's while we're here, let's talk a little bit about marketing, other than convincing your editor to come with you on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast, which obviously we all agree is the savviest move that <laughs> that you could make. What are the most effective things that you can be doing, uh, Dorothy, to go out and 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 market your book? Me. Um... <laughs> Well, you know, it, there are certain things that are just sort of cliched. You need to be on Twitter. You need to be on Facebook. Um, if you, well, let me put it this way. You need to be on social media. And um, if that's not necessarily any given platform in social media, because I think some people are more comfortable on one platform than on another. I like Twitter, for instance. I, I don't like Instagram. I, I don't know what to do with just images. Um, so, but, but I have a I know another writer who's very very good on Instagram so I think but but you do need to be out there just to have some voice um I usually um so I look at lists of bloggers like for instance middle grade ninja and I contact why would you even keep looking after that I mean to maybe review or do guest posts or or interviews or whatever, and um, I know Inspired Quill does that too. They're looking from their end also, but I am too, and because there, there's just so many places you can look that um, nobody can look at them all, and so you know I keep track and do that. Um, I go to author fairs. Um, my in, in the Chicago area, a lot of the libraries under ordinary times have a lot of uh, author fairs where you can go and you know, they give you, there'll be maybe 20 authors there. You have a table with the books on it and anyone coming in, 
now obviously they're coming in to borrow books, not buy, but they still will look at your books and sometimes they'll buy them and at least you can give them, like I have bookmarks, I can give them one of my bookmarks and so you kind of um, enjoy yourself. I enjoy myself that way. Um, I don't know. What else I, What else do I do? I can't think. Oh, um, but I don't know, I guess. This time, it, and one of the things that's interesting is that once you've built a contact with a blogger, they often ask you back. So, like, I, I did a guest post for, for Middle Grade Ninja, and when I contacted you, I think that made it, for, about the wise men, I think that made it um, easier. Yeah, no, I was about to toss your email straight to the incinerator, and I said, oh, wait. <laughs> Dorothy Windsor, I remember she wrote that fantastic guest post. She's I think I put the link in there for you. <laughs> no, honestly, uh, all, all jokes aside, it really was a difference maker in this case because you sent me that uh, closer to the beginning of quarantine when I was try still trying to figure out whether or not uh, how, how, how dramatically life was going to change and, and what I was still going to be able to do for authors. Uh, and I had uh, literally turned down some other folks uh, that same day. And I said, oh, well, Dorothy Windsor, I know Dorothy. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we'll figure something out for Dorothy. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you. Anyway, it does, I think personal relationships actually matter a lot. If you can, you, once again, sound like a person, sound like a human being. Yeah, and uh, Sarah, to you. Yeah, so I think um, you can kind of break down marketing to online and offline. Um, offline, things like events, um, you know, doing readings in, in bookshops, going to libraries. Um, if you're a, a genre writer, so sci-fi fantasy, there's all, always a lot of conventions. So, for example, uh, Inspiqueer went to Dublin last year for Worldcon, which was amazing. Um, super expensive, but amazing. Um, and that kind of gives you the, the real ability to connect with readers in, in a very authentic way because it's they can see the sincerity of the person who's speaking with them. Online, it's slightly more difficult. So as I mentioned, Inspired Quill was, was a book review blog sort of 10 years ago. Um, and I send out probably between five and 20 emails every single week to book bloggers and I am lucky if I get one or two responses not even a canned response but literally any kind of response um, which is a little bit disheartening in a lot of ways because I always make sure that I don't just do a scattergun approach so it's not as if I've got a list and I'll just send out a bulk email to 100 people um, so that's that can be a little disheartening sometimes um, but in terms of other marketing, you know, Dorothy was saying about being on different platforms, but being on platforms that you actually enjoy using, which is incredibly important because otherwise you just stop using it. And what's the use? Um, and um, also that there's a little bit of a, um, a Venn diagram there with where is your um, where's your target audience, I guess. So if you're you know, trying to be the next Marie Kondo with a, a book about organizing things and, um, you know, that, that sort of niche, then you probably want to be on Pinterest or Instagram. If you're writing something um, that's more sort of 
slightly technical based with lots of information maybe you want to be on quora if your audience skews younger maybe you want to go for you know booktubers or you know facebook for example so that side of things i think a lot of authors get very um anxious about marketing because they see marketing as like this big monolith of oh i've got to do all of the things um when you know thankfully that's that's not the case gotcha so um just out of curiosity because we're about to 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 go that way now um dorothy mentioned that uh, you'd ultimately once you got your rights reverted uh self-published at least one book and i um no obviously that's an option we, we just chatted with uh hugh howie and i never get tired of telling people about it uh i think it'll be three episodes behind this one esteemed audience if you missed it go back listen to it it's amazing um obviously i self-publish i'm a big believer in self-publishing so when we're talking i think you said 40 percent uh or was it 35 percent and then 40 percent once you get the loyal the loyalty uh bonus with the ebooks uh versus the full 70 percent what uh, what are you what are you gaining for that thirty percent that you're you're giving up? And I'll open that up. Dorothy, we'll start with you, and then uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah, I will give you a chance to to, to chime in as well. Um, go ahead. Um, there are a lot of things I don't have to think about because Sarah thinks about them, right? Um, she hires someone to make the cover, and um, she edits, so I don't have to hire a separate editor. Um, she does. Uh, you know, the marketing, and she tells me, helps to guide me as to what I should be doing too. So it's having a support team, I guess, for me is how I feel. Um, particularly since my technical skills are pretty limited. Um, I mean, I do my best when I'm, I'm learning new stuff all the time, but you know, I'm not, I'm not good at, uh, I mean, I didn't even know what SEO was, right? So, you know, the thing I do enjoy with my self-published book, though, is being able to fool around with it on um, Amazon. That is, or I sh they're the bad name. On Amazon, I um, I can run a like a sale, you know, a ninety-nine cent sale, and see what happens. If that didn't work, I could try something else, and it's just kind of fun for me. I, I since I'm not trying to live off of what I make from my books, thank God. Um, <laughs> the uh, it's you know I that I enjoy kind of playing around with it that aspect of it and that's going to be kind of the theme of uh, as our as our conversation progresses and we talk about how you collaborate on the book we're going to learn well about what 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 you're getting for that 30 percent that you're, you're giving up <laughs> uh, but sarah i want you uh, speak to that uh, as well before we move to, the, to that part of it yeah and you know that's something else as as a small publisher we've got to earn our salt so I do get some very dirty looks from other people in the industry when I say quite loudly and clearly that I think self-publishing is fantastic. Um, and I've been saying that for a decade, you know, when um, Kindles were just kind of starting to be a big thing. Um, you know, I was all for self-publishing. Um, but as Dorothy said, I think something that all publishers, not obviously just small publishers, but all publishers need to do is you know, for, for whatever percentage we, we take, it's making sure that it's not just about the, you know, the um, cover design and the editorial and, and things like that. It's about 
de development of skills as well. So I'm huge on skills development. So I did a full online course for the Inspired Quill authors, um, which is actually available to, to the public as well. Um, although the public has to pay for it and the Inspired Quill authors get it for free. Where can um, the public go to uh, pay for that eagerly? Um, so <laughs> where so would they, they find that just at inspired-quill.com? It's, it's not actually it's um i i never really shout about it which is ridiculous because it's a, a good course if i may say so myself um but it's sjslack.teachable.com um i'll probably put it on the inspire quill website at, at some point as well but i've not really got round to that yet um i'll put it in the show notes as well esteemed audience so check there um so yeah i mean it, it, it's a case of doing all the stuff that big publishers um, do as well because I've always wanted to make sure that Inspired Quill has the quality of a big publisher and it's really gratifying for example when we go to events and people ask if we're an imprint of XYZ big publisher um, and you know people are like oh th these books look really good and the, the quality of them is really great and you know your website's good and um, that's really important to me to you know really focus on the detail as well as the big picture. All right. Well, let's uh, pick the chapter or the story back up. Uh, we've we've uh, had our first Skype chat. You sat on the contract for a week. Everything looked good. You talked with your writer friends. You're on board. So you yeah. come back. You've agreed on terms. What happened? What's the next step for the book then, uh, Dorothy? There was, there was a date by which the full manuscript uh, had to be submitted. I mean, Sarah had already read it, but presumably I might want to do something. I might have thought of something, other revision to make in the meantime, um, because until it's out of my hands, that's always a danger. So, um, <laughs> you know, so I sent her the full manuscript by the date, probably ahead of time because I'm fanatically early. And um, she, uh, there was a date, a publication date that was pretty, you know, far in the future. You, you have to get used to waiting around if you go with a publisher of any size. And um, then at some point, and it wasn't right away, it was probably several months because, you know, there are things in their publication pipeline that she's working on first. Eventually she sent me edits. And, um, you know, and I'm talking about developmental edits now. And there, that is story quality edits. And there weren't very many. It was a very light hand on that very light hand. I thought, well, that's just Sarah. But uh, since then, I've heard another Inspired Quill author say, yeah, I had to add 10 scenes. And I'm thinking, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, it was a very light hand. And so I did that, whatever it was. And I mean, I can, I, as I say, I like revising. I'm happy. And so I sent it back and then comes back a round of uh, copy edits. And at some point also, we were talking about the cover. They asked me for what I might want for, what ideas I might have for what could go on the cover. And this is not something I'm, uh, you know, uh, I'm very research-based on some of this stuff. And I didn't know anything about it. I mean, a book cover is supposed to be like a little billboard that advertises the book and tells what kind of book it is. So I, I went to my local Barnes & Noble at that point and asked, which is where I used to go to write. So they all knew me. And I asked the person, you know, one of the managers, whether the YA books had 
people or objects on the cover most the most and she said it was about half and half so that told me it didn't seem to matter but i went and looked at some of the, those covers and then i wrote back to sarah and said how about this how about that and she found so that so i think there was a you know and so there was some negotiation over the cover because she found an artist and if you like this do you like that and what changes do you want hmm. I, what else is in there i don't know all that took didn't take terribly long maybe a year from the time i signed the contract to the time the book came out maybe and you're just kind of going back and forth you said there was the developmental edits and then around right. the copy edits right right uh, and, and then are you uh, chatting on a regular basis about making a plan for launch from there or i don't think so i don't remember frankly for this book the wise man it seems to me we're doing a lot more for launch than we did for the wind reader and i don't know what the difference is there but there's a lot more going on this time. We're chatting about it a lot. I'm back and forth with someone from Inspired Quill all the time. Uh, at, they find things, I find things, and my policy on anything they suggest is to say yes. Um, you know, will you do this? Sure. Will you do that? Sure. Can you do this? Well, why not? So, and then I figure it out you later. You can hear you, right? So you have to get really far. <laughs> I don't, so I have to figure, and then I go out and I go and I figure out how to do that thing I just agreed to do. So, um, so we're going back and forth a lot right now. The launch is uh, the twenty seventh, June twenty seventh. So, uh, you know, we're we're going right now. We're back and forth. Um, I, they, Sarah has not said this, but she's in Madrid. And I'm in Chicago, so um, what happens is they've been working in what is day for them. And I get up in the morning; it's like 6 a.m. And I'm looking at my email, and there's emails here for for things they they suggest I might want to do. Uh, so so that's what I get up to, if I'm lucky. Actually, I'm always grateful when those things turn up. But that's that's when they're there for me. That's when they slide into my mailbox. Um, so, um, I don't know. We're going back and forth a lot for this one. That's got to be both uh, both frustrating and a blessing because you get that email, like, oh, I can't respond. They, they won't see it for 24 hours. But yeah. you're forced to take a breath, whatever it is, yeah. and like, okay, let me yeah. make sure I send it. I calm, rational. Yeah. I had have, all day to think of this response. Have my, co have my coffee first, you know, before I do anything <laughs> right. Uh, and then, uh, Sarah, what, uh, what is your approach when you get a book like uh, Dorothy's or anybody's, when you come in with that developmental edit uh, versus the copy edit, um, what, uh, what, what do you remember, what changes you requested for Dorothy's book, and what, what, what types of things typically are you looking to have done? So, over the last year and a half or so, We've had a complete overhaul in the process. So I, I mentioned before that we're a micropress. And when I say micropress, there's me and uh, my partner now uh, I've roped into to helping because uh, they also have a, a master's degree. So that's um, <laughs> that's useful. Um, and a couple of, of volunteers and, and freelancers that we, um, you know, that, that, that we use quite a lot. So um it used to be that I was always trying to sort of catch up with myself and certainly until a couple of years ago. And I think the Wind Reader had a little bit of this whereby it was a case of, 
we're launching next week. I should probably get the book formatted. Um, <laughs> like, let's press the go button 48 hours before launch. It will be fine. Um, and that wasn't because I... W- that wasn't because I didn't want to do more for the book or, you know, have a, have a better process. It was because I was always trying to effectively do too much. Unfortunately, despite many letters to Santa, there are only 24 hours in a day. And, you know, I have a full-time job as well as working on Inspired Quill. So, um, you can imagine that my my days and weekends are are quite uh, long, shall we say. Whereas this year, I really took a step back, last year, I guess, I really took a step back and said, I can't try and publish 12 books a year because two of them get shunted into the next year anyway and the quality is not where I want it to be and I'm not giving the authors and the back catalogue the support. So we completely redid our process. So between submission and print, there's now, I think it's 14 or 15 months. Everything has its own due date. There are over 200 steps to publication. Um, that was a day fueled with coffee and a cork board <laughs> and lots of post-it notes. Um, but it, it really helped kind of figure out, you know, how much time do I need for things? Um, and just smaller things like, for example, with the developmental edit, I used to do it just in in a Word document and I used to edit as I went along and then at the end of a book I might find a plot hole or something that didn't necessarily render my previous edits completely moot but kind of made me go, oh, I've got to reread it again. So now what I do is I load it onto my e-reader and I read it as a reader and I make notes. So, oh, this is, I love this bit. That character's really interesting. Um, would that character really say that? You've not mentioned that before. So rather than trying to edit it, I just come up with questions. That gets sent back to the author for a first run through. And then I start with the the deep edit um, after that. So, you know, just trying to make everything a little bit more streamlined and to actually leave time as well for publication. So, you know, this time, for example, we had the book ready and raring to go, I think, two months before launch date, Dorothy, something like that. Yeah. Um, and that's the first time this has happened. So proof is in the pudding, as they say. Um, so, yeah, that that was really, um, really important for me in terms of taking all of those steps out of my brain and putting them down on paper and being realistic and it's one of the reasons why we've unfortunately not been able to open submissions for the past almost two years now, because um, realistically, as one person, I can only publish six books a year. We have 19 authors at Inspired Quill at the moment, and all of them, all at the same time, decided to send me new manuscripts. <laughs> um, so it's it's a very fine balance because I, you know, if it was up to me, I would just open submissions and, and let a rip and work 16 hour days on Inspired Quill and just go for it. Unfortunately, got to eat, so can't do that yet. Um, but it's it's really lucky as well, I guess, just to segue slightly that, um, you know, I love my day job and it gives me lots of great skills for Inspired Quill as well. So it's not like you know, going into an office that 
you hate and like oh, looking at the clock until you then get to do the thing that you're really passionate about. I'm very, very lucky in that I have two jobs and I love them both effectively. So what, uh, and, and Dorothy, I'm going to pass this back to you in, in just a moment, but let's stay with, I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of part-time publisher. Um, so what does your day, I mean, that's got to be the longest day ever, uh, mm. most days. Uh, so what does your typical day look like? And then when are you carving out time to spend with your partner? Do something that's not book related. Have have have, have some fun. <laughs> that is a good question. That is a very good question. Um, so during the week, I normally start my day job at half eight in the morning. Um, so my my work as a, as a project manager with Exposure Ninja, we're a completely remote company and have been f- since its inception. Um, I've been with them for about a year and a half now. So it's great because I can just kind of, you know, roll out of bed, grab some breakfast and my commuting time is very, very short. <laughs> um, so that's from half eight to about between four and five o'clock um, in, in the afternoon uh, is my typical work day there. Um, I will then stop for a snack because here in Spain we have something called merienda, which is like afternoon tea at about five, between five and half past. Um, at about half past five, I will then start my inspired quill shift until about nine o'clock or so when I will stop, have dinner and then either do a little bit of uh, non-inspired quill reading or, um, you know, watch watch a, a show or two and um, spend time with my partner. At the weekend, it tends to be starting on inspired quill. Um, so this is Saturday and Sunday probably about 11 in the morning and finishing again eight nine at night um so at time of recording this it's currently uh 21 21 where i am so um af- after this recording i'll probably go and have something to eat <laughs> <laughs> let me uh let me know when your your stomach is really growling and we'll, we'll start to <laughs> <this>. <laughs> uh dorothy same question back to you what is your typical uh work day look like it depends on what I'm doing. Uh, when I'm drafting, I, okay, under normal circumstances, in the before time, and one hopes in the after time, I leave the house, I leave where I live, my, and go somewhere else to draft, to work. Um, it's like going to work for me. I'm very, it's like, a, and I always go to the same place. Lately, I've been going to the public library, which is right next door, and to, to the building I live in, and um I, dra- I work for two hours. I draft by hand, and I aim for about a thousand words in that time. Although it depends on what I'm doing, you know, if I'm revising or if I'm, but if I'm just purely drafting, I aim for about a thousand words. I come back, I uh, key that all into my manuscript. Lots of times editing as I go, and so that takes you know another half hour, forty-five minutes maybe, and and that's about it. I try not to do work on the weekends. I, I tend to need, I need downtime for my brain to come up with new ideas. I get a lot of ideas on Saturday because I'm not working that. I've been working all week and it's like there's this spillover into Saturday and it, where I'm coming up with ideas. When I am working, when I'm drafting and writing, I tend to think about the book all the time. Um, I dream about it. I wake up in the middle of the night with ideas for it. And... Um, uh, you know, it's it's. I'm very busy with it in my head, although not necessarily at my desk. 
So that's what I'm drafting or revising, you know, working on the book. Now, as it happens at the moment, I had just sent Sarah the Dilly book, I think, maybe, when, um, how, how I, I'm not drafting right now. I'm not writing right now. This is a good, which, so it's good because I'm working on, you know, the launch stuff and so on. And Sarah has that other book. And um, because I find that my mind, that the back of my mind that's always working on a book when I'm working on it right now is busy worrying about the pandemic and, the, you know, and everything else that's going on around us. I find that it's, I find it very stressful. You know, it'd be nice to pretend that I don't stress out about it at all, but I do feel stressed about it. It's, and for me, stress tends to kill creativity. But it's just, I mean, I admire anyone who can work through this because I sure can't. You know, I can do routine things. I can send off, you know, emails to people and so on, but I, I can't. Generating a new text at the moment strikes me as just impossible. So, um, so that is about how I work. And I read. I read a lot. I think uh, any writer should be reading a lot. Right? I define a lot. How, how much reading do you typically do in a week? Oh, I usually finish somewhere between two and three novels in a week reading, depending on the book. I just recently read uh, um, Hilary Mantel's uh, mirror, I think Light in the Mirror or whatever it is. And that, that took me a while. It's, it's, a, it's a big honking thing. Um, <laughs> But now I'm reading uh, a shorter YA novel that that's I'm going to finish that in a couple of days. Um, so, you know, I think writers, most writers are readers. I don't see how you could not be. Well, you say that, and yet I know so many examples. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. I'm, I'm with sometimes, you. <laughs> sometimes your life, sometimes life is just too full, right? You know, and you can't do everything. Um, my life right now is, you know, I don't have kids at home. I don't have a day job. I have, so it's really easy for me to structure it if I could get myself to get my butt in a chair and, and do it, you know, to write more or whatever it is. But I'm fine, at, you know, with the amount that I've done right now. So, so that's how I, that's for me. So you're kind of living the dream with, with no day job, time to read and write. If you if we could just get this pandemic to calm down. It is pretty uh, good. You know, the I, collapse I, of uh, Western civilization, if that would just hold off for a minute so we could all get some writing done. <laughs> I can't complain, I have to say. Yeah, I feel very lucky. And um, might as well go ahead and uh, stick with this theme of, of quarantine, which has become the theme of almost every episode, it seems, since, yeah. <laughs> since it started. But, uh, Sarah, how uh, is quarantine impacting you and impacting your habits working from home? Is there that much of a change for you? Um, for me, no, because I've, I've been working remotely for a year and a half. Um, the biggest challenge that, that I had, so my um, my partner and I, we were going to move back to the UK. Um, and we got our plane tickets. We were going to go back on March the 20th. <laughs> and lockdown wow. happened on March the 14th. So um, very, very luckily, um, again, feel very privileged to be in a position where, um, you know, we still have a roof over our head, um, currently living with my mother-in-law who... I adore, um, just to, you know, say that quickly. Um, so, you know, actually, I'm, I'm in a very, very privileged position because my work wasn't affected. I, I didn't even have to be furloughed. 
Um, there's been a fairly big change in terms of Inspired Quill. So events are huge for us uh, because we're so small and, you know, we just don't have the, I call it screaming into a void <laughs> online, trying to be trying to be noticed and being noticed for the right reasons as well. So, um, you know, not kind of kicking off just to kind of get attention sort of thing. Um, and events are huge and obviously you know, they've been hit completely, uh, you know, reduced to pretty much zero um, for the last few months. So in terms of, you know, sort of cash flow, we were doing quite well and then we weren't. Um, we have seen more people buy direct from our website, which is amazing because I spent a lot of time on it. Um, and, you know, more more and more people are staying away from certain big websites and their subsidiaries, which is nice. Um, but again, it, it comes back to that. People can only buy from you if, if they know about you. So we've been doing a lot in terms of being online and showing up consistently. So, for example, with Twitter, we're actually quite active on, on Twitter now. Uh, whereas before, because I was wearing so many different hats and had so much to do, um, it was definitely a case of, oh, I need to tweet. I've not tweeted in three days. What do I tweet? Oh, let's just retweet this because it's it's great. Or let's just remind people that we exist. Whereas now I really feel as though we, we're part of a conversation on, on Twitter and reaching out to people in, in an authentic way because I just can't stomach. And I think I mentioned earlier when um, mentioning bloggers, like I cannot stomach the hey, how are you? By the way, buy our books. Um, I'm, I'm really bad at selling at events as well. I will stand there talking to someone about the industry for half an hour. And um, it's great because at the end, they're like, ah, so tell me about your books. And I'm like, oh, yeah, the books. OK, cool. So this is what we've got. <laughs> but it works and people remember us. And it's that level of authenticity, I think, that's that's really important and that, that people really respond to with Inspired Quill. I must say, I greatly prefer that to the um, uh, aggressive in your face. Let me make you ha touch and handle my book while we're talking. Yeah, I, I, I didn't yeah. ask for that. Maybe I'm interested. Maybe I'm not. But calm down. Let's. That's really funny, actually, <laughs> because at events, we noticed that people would come up to the table and just lean over the table and not touch the book. So what we started doing was putting two of the same book together, one with the front cover and one with the back cover. So if people wanted to read the blurb, they didn't feel as though they had to touch the book. Um, because as you were saying, it's like you, you touch it, you bought it kind of thing. And, and we'll actually make a joke out of it on, on the Inspire Quill table. We'll say, we won't charge you if you touch the book. You're allowed to like, you know, read a paragraph and put it down again. We won't chase after you. It's fine. Um, and, you know, I think that that endears. We're back out and about. That, that's fantastic. Put one book face up, one book with the back. That's that's going to change the way I, ever, I do every <laughs> event from now on. That's brilliant. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you. Continue. No, no, it's fine. It's, yeah, I mean, that that's pretty much it, to be honest. I mean, yeah, the whole sort of global pandemic thing, I didn't really have that on my 2020 bingo card to begin with, but there we go. Um, but it's it's interesting as well because there's so much going on and... I find it very difficult to ask directly for support. So, for example, posting on Twitter, things like, you know, um, in order to support a, a 
non-profit social enterprise, which is what Inspired Quill is, you know, please consider purchasing a book from our website. We sell paperbacks and e-books, um, things like that. Um, some people are really good at it and absolutely power to them because it works. Um, it's something that I really need to, to work on. And because of the current situation, I've realized that it's something I, I need to work on. And it occurs to me while we're, while we're talking about the pandemic and potentially the end of the world, uh, Dorothy, you, of course, wrote a fantastic guest post uh, that uh, I titled. Uh, so I did this to you, which I think was good. Chronology, B-plot, Dawn of New Year's, which right. uh, still makes me smile. I, I hope uh, esteemed audience right. was, was, was touched by that. Uh, and you talked about um, other cultures. Uh, and as we uh, approach a momentous calendar date, we, we, you know, especially if there's a plague going on, uh, if there's something that uh, could be the grounds for Armageddon, 2020 doesn't feel like, I mean, it's, it's a round number. It doesn't feel like the end of a calendar event. How close are we to Armageddon? Should we be worried? Uh, let's try not to be. <laughs> um, uh, no, I would say not. But let me put it this way. Uh, the Well, it's pretty scary. But I have faith that there will eventually be a vaccine or an effect and or an effective treatment. I have faith in science, I guess, but who knows how long it will take is the issue. So the rest of us until then, we just gotta kind of live around it, you know? Um, I don't know, it's, uh, people are amazing sometimes, you know, at how they adjust and manage to find um, satisfying things anyway you know, satisfying ways to live and um, find out what matters to them, what they're willing to concentrate on. So, but it is stressful. It's hard to, can't deny that, at least for me. I, uh, you both mentioned Twitter uh, and I, I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter because I recognize that I am addicted to it. Uh, and um, one, I, I only post maybe one out of five tweets I'll, I'll write it and like, that's dumb, delete, delete, delete. Um, but I, I, I started sleeping with my Nintendo Switch by my bed next to my phone so that when I wake up in the morning, instead of reaching first thing from my phone and checking Twitter, I reach for the Nintendo and ah, the calming face of Mario for a mission. And now I can face today as opposed to let me pick up the entire world's uh, anxiety that they posted <laughs> on, a, on a bulletin board and, and, yeah. and be greeted right away with the collapse. Um, but you mentioned that you're uh, active on, on Twitter. How much time are you devoting to Twitter? Uh, and then, Sarah, same question for you, since you're now actively pursuing uh, Twitter followers. Teach me to Twitter better. I don't know how much time I spend on Twitter. If I, if I get, well, this is one reason I leave my house and write by hand, right? Because when I'm off doing that at the library, I have no access to online at all. I, I I deliberately have no access to online at all while I'm doing that. It just makes it much easier for me to work. Um, but if when like right now, I would have Twitter open on my, um, uh, you know, my desktop, and I would, I check, I check. If I'm not doing anything else, I check to see what's going on on Twitter. Twitter is very good at making you addicted because they keep popping up uh, that they put that little red dot at the top that says there are new tweets, you know, and they'll say tweets these people have tweeted and the one thing i do not do uh, oh another thing i did not do was did not put it on my phone i have to see it on my desktop because i i 
saw that was said notices to your phone and I thought well that seems like a bad idea so um uh you know I just uh I guess it's so I guess I've limited it uh geographically so to speak I can only do it when I'm sitting at my desk <laughs> so you can't be greeted with it first thing before you you've had your I, coffee no I can't I can't so well Actually, I do. I am greeted by it before I have my coffee because I stumble in here and look at my email, which has come in from Spain in the middle of the night. <laughs> and, you know, and then, then I check Twitter. And you're also not guilty of uh, when, when, I, when I feel really low as if I've, I'm tired of scrolling through laptop Twitter. Let me check phone Twitter and see if that's any different. Oh, okay. is it any different? Is it any different on there? <laughs> and it is. It's like Twitter knows. <laughs> oh God! Uh, and then, uh, Sarah, same question to you: How are you actively uh, pursuing Twitter, and what tips do you have for 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 great Twitter usage? So, one of the things that has really um, opened my eyes on Twitter is who I follow. So, before it was pretty much like you know authors and other publishers. Um, mm -hmm. didn't really follow that many people because I thought, oh, we don't have many followers. And if people see that we're following as many people as followers, then they're not going to, you know, uh, followers. And it, you just second guess yourself. So now it's just a case of who do I want to actually interact with? Like, mm -hmm. I don't need to be following this really famous person, um, you know, th this really famous author just to keep an eye on what they're doing and, you know, all of that, because it'll either be on my timeline or because they're in the industry, I'll see I'll see the, the dumpster fire of what they've said now kind of thing. Um, so <laughs> I do tend to follow a lot of, uh, you know, bloggers, uh, booktubers now, um, but also slightly outside of the industry. So, um, you know, people who are interested in social justice um, academics uh, you know people like that so it's not just like I'm only going to follow authors in this genre that we publish um, it, it's getting a slightly broader um, thing of, of, of what's happening in the industry you know uh, even businesses uh, bookshops of course but also businesses that are you know eco-friendly for example because that's something that we really want to hit home i'm writing an eco pledge at the moment we want to be carbon neutral uh within the next few years so that's that's a big thing for me um and just using it as a, as a platform to learn as well so like you sometimes writing tweets and then going actually is this adding to the conversation no let's delete it um which is been you know certainly in in june so far something that i've i've done a lot um and sort of yeah um getting out of my own way and, and checking my own ego as well it's very good for that there's always a, a slight you know pang of pride where someone said something that's completely wrong and awful and you don't engage it's brilliant <laughs> Their punishment is they have to go on being wrong and awful without you. Uh, to stop. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know who I, I follow, like my former students, and also when I was editing the scholarly journal, you kind of, when you do that, you kind of wind up mentoring some of the younger faculty members in, in the field because they submit their papers to you and you 
write them back and say, try this, try that. And if the, if you if you care about what you're doing, which I, because it seems to me that's sort of the function of what you're doing in, the, in a job like that. And I follow all those people. And it's just such a joy to see. You'll see the day they get tenure, they'll announce it. Or they'll pictures of their babies, you know. I mean, it's just, it's just that I really, really enjoy is keeping up with these people that I used to know when they were much younger, you know. It's, it's nice. See, uh, here's a question for both of you before I forget, uh, because every esteemed audience knows it's not middle grade ninja if I don't ask. Uh, Dorothy Windsor, uh, Sarah Jane Slack, have either of you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? Dorothy, you first. I have never seen one. I uh, do not believe we're alone in the universe. That seems kind of self-centered to believe that, but I'm not sure I believe that there are uh, UFOs in our skies right now. <laughs> and I've not seen one. I'll send you some literature. We'll get, we'll get that turned around. Oh, <laughs> uh, Sarah, same question. So, yeah, for me, like Dorothy, I believe that, you know, we can't be the only semi-intelligent life form <laughs> because that would be ridiculous. Um, I'm a firm believer that if there are other things out there, that we are so backwards and ridiculous that they're just kind of like, <laughs> nah, let's let's wait another millennium, see if they can grow up. Um, have I ever seen one? That's a really interesting question. I firmly believed the first time I went on an aeroplane when I was seven years old that I saw something that could not be explained by having, you know, a shadow or something like that. But do I think it was a, a UFO? No, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. I saw something, and it was probably nothing. <laughs> Are we talking about a classic disc, or what did seven-year-old think she think she saw? Um, it was kind of like a shadow where there shouldn't have been a shadow. Um, and you know how you know sometimes light reflects on glass, so you kind of move your head around and and see if if it moves from, from those angles and, and it didn't, and then it just kind of accelerated and then disappeared. So who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I'm convinced. Case closed. That counts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I think two more questions and, and we'll call it a day. Does that sound reasonable? Cool. Good. I always want to end this while we're, while we're still having fun before, uh, before it becomes a slog. <laughs> Uh, so here's a question I, I didn't want to deny you because this is a question I, I try to think of the show as if I were going to go on someone's podcast, what question would I want to be asked? And I'd want to have just a free spot. So that's what this is, is, is there a question someone hasn't asked you um, about your series that you would like to answer? Um, and Dorothy, I'll start with you and then, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, one of this is something I've sort of touched on before in today, but I've been thinking about it because one of my neighbors asked me last week why I decided to write for this age group, she says, you know, and I thought about that and I realized I never did decide to write for young people. I decided to write about young people and um, it, it rather startled me the first time I realized that that meant that people thought I was writing, uh, that I intended to write for them. No, it, it, I don't. I enjoy being around young people, obviously, but 
that wasn't how I thought of what I was doing. So I want people to stop stop asking me why I decided to write about young people. <laughs> how about that? I like it. You flipped the question on it. So yes, I did. What's something you would prefer people stop asking you? That's great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, and Sarah, either about the book or about uh, publishing total, because I feel like there's more tea we haven't spilled. <laughs> what, what would you like to answer? Um, I don't know, to be honest. I, I get so many different questions from so many different places. Um, quite often, um, the, the, the same questions about, you know, how did you get into publishing and, and that sort of thing. And I always have to disappoint people by saying I kind of, accidentally fell into it yeah. um but yeah I, I don't think there's there's much to um in terms of a, a question that's not asked I, I guess the thing that I would want to say to people is um support indies <laughs> um you know you can go to big chain shops or you know sometimes smaller bookshops as well and you you have the books that everyone's heard of which are fantastic and you should absolutely read most of them if you can um but also remember that there are indies out there doing great work you know the, there's um some amazing folks in in the uk publishing scene specifically so you know jocaranda books knights of um eerie press i'm, I'm not going to continue because there's too many i'm going to forget people <laughs> um and normally you can buy books direct from the website as well which is a huge thing is a huge you don't have to go to certain places online to buy books um and especially now one one of the silver linings that has come from the current nonsense um of, of this pandemic is that a lot of bookshops and indie presses now have websites where you can buy stuff from um so you know if you can't go to a bookshop for whatever reason then you know check check out online and obviously that's a great step forward that should have happened much much sooner not just in terms of widening the audience but for accessibility reasons as well you know for for folks who can't um you know get to the local library or to, to local bookshops or can't get into the shop or um, for, for whatever reason, um, you know, it, it's important to, to kind of put your money where your mouth is, I guess, as well. So I, I wanted to say something too about people because I run into, this is something people do talk to me about, about U.S. buyers buying books from some, from Inspired Quill or other U.K publishers on their websites um, because I know uh, you ship to the U.S. for three pounds. Is that right? Uh, yes, I believe so. It's a flat fee. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. And you don't charge sales tax. Correct. <laughs> Which is really nice because, um, you know, where I live, there's quite a sales tax in, in, uh, in Chicagoland. So, um, you know, all you have to do is look at the I realize that people kind of blink. Oh, and also when the ebooks come, you send them the ebooks with instructions on how, where to, how, you send them the version they want and tell them how to use it, right? So it's possible for US buyers to buy easily from the Inspired Quill site. That's a little plug. Thank you for that one. <laughs> uh, then my last question uh, for you both is always going to be some variation 
Uh, uh, Dorothy, we'll start with you. If you could go back to the start of your career and give yourself some advice that would have made a huge difference for you and that any authors uh, listening now would maybe would maybe make a huge bit of difference for them, what would you go back and tell yourself? Um, my biggest problem is my impatience. I want some things to be right away. And, you know, I'm very impatient and I, um, so I would say, and publish, publishing is not a good place to be if you are an impatient person. So I would say patience, you know, it's okay. Take your time, things will happen. Um, it doesn't have to be right. Patience, patience, what is it? Grasshopper, I guess, is what is, is the quote. Isn't it? <laughs> patience. So I guess that would be my advice. Uh, and then, uh, Sarah, what, uh, for all the authors listening, what do you wish that they would do? What advice would you offer them? Um, okay, in a nutshell, the, the, I think the biggest bit of advice I would give is publishing is brutal. Don't take it personally, but please, please, please read the submission guidelines. <laughs> Brilliant. I think that's the perfect place to end. Thank you both uh, so much for making the time today. This has been just an absolute pleasure and a, and a treat. And when book three comes comes out, come back, we'll we'll do it again. Uh, Dorothy, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, buy all your books, all that good stuff? Um, my blog is dawindsor.com, D-A-W-I-N-S-O-R.com. And you'll find my books are... Inspired Quill has seen to it that they are on every online site, all of them, you know, IndieBound, plus big stores, plus on their site, too. Um, people can follow you on Twitter at? Oh, uh, at Dorothy Windsor. Uh, and um, I think it's the same on uh, Facebook, if, should you be inclined. Uh, and then, uh, Sarah, where, where can folks find you online? So... Uh, on Twitter, it's at Inspired Quill without the hyphen. Uh, same on Facebook. The website is www.inspired-quill.com. Uh, and if any of your uh, viewers want to uh, get in touch with me with, with questions about the industry and, and follow-up questions, then just use the contact form. I, I try to respond within three working days, depending on uh, if I'm just about to launch a book. <laughs> That is a bold move. Esteemed audience, if there's anything... I'm going to come assume, back to you in a couple of weeks and be like, oh, no. <laughs> seriously, I'm, I'm always open to, to answering questions about the industry. Um, and if I don't know the answer, I will signpost to someone who does. I was just going to say, esteemed audience, if you have questions for me about the industry, please go to inspired-quill.com. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Uh, and he gets your question answered. Um, thanks again. Uh, what a wonderful program. What a, what a wonderful day. Uh, happy launch day. Uh, the Wiseman is available now. Go get your copy. As always, esteemed audience, keep up with me at middlegradeninja.com. Don't forget to download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you.